Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, January 9th. Amanda Borchel Dunn here with our editor, David Horvitz, and investigative reporter, Ina Lazareva. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hello. So good to have you here with me. Now, listeners, we have a pretty somber second half of the program in which Ina will dive into her very deep investigation into abuses faced by Ukrainian women who are seeking refuge here in Israel since the beginning of the war with Russia. So be advised that we will discuss disturbing themes in the second half of the program. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. David, let's turn to you and begin the program with remarks made by former Supreme Court head Aaron Barak in a series of television interviews he gave over the weekend. Now, it's clear that the 86-year-old is very agitated. So what were some of his statements? Uh, He gave three interviews. He's uh, not a young man anymore. He is the most world-renowned of Israel's jurists um, who served on the Supreme Court for and a considerable uh, length of time, he was uh, a very young appointee to the Supreme Court. Um, and for the last 11 years of his service from uh, 1995 to 2006, if I'm not mistaken, he was the president of the Supreme Court. Um, he's really sees himself and was named as such by the new justice minister, Yeriv Levine, as the target of what are described by the new government as reforms and what are feared by critics as a constitutional revolution that changes Israel very fundamentally in terms of its, of its democracy. Uh, Levin alleges that Barak, uh, without uh, authority, expanded the authority of the court, made the high court a place where everything could be judged, uh, intervened outrageously and subverted the will of the electorate. Uh, and Barak, who does not give interviews as a rule and who plainly was speaking with tremendous anguish, uh, wanted to warn Israelis of his ass- assessment that these are not reforms and this is not a rebalancing. He said he favors reform and change. There was room for reform and change and he has some specific suggestions. But what the new coalition is intending to do, he said, basically, I- I'm just going to tell you, he said, you know, it will be the beginning of the end of modern Israel. It will be a hollow democracy with no protection for individual rights. And um, there were some quite extraordinary things he said. So uh, I suppose the most dramatic, which I don't, I don't know what to make of it. So we'll, we'll just tell you. Um, he said, you know, if putting me in front of a firing squad would put an end to all of this, as I'm supposedly, you know, the enemy of the nation, you know, so, you know, do it. 
I, I don't think he expects anyone to go and do that. He also said that if he was on the Supreme Court today, he would resign, uh, which strikes me as spectacularly counterproductive because among the quote-unquote reforms in this overhaul is a reconstitution of the panel that selects Israel, Israel's justices uh, in such a way that the governing majority of the day basically chooses the judges. So if all the current 15 judges on the Supreme Court bench were to quit, uh, that would be to the great delight of uh, uh, the new coalition because then they would then be able to fill the court uh, with their own uh, candidates. So th clearly this was, you know, th these were interviews by somebody you know, deeply impassioned and, and immensely concerned, even to the point of saying things that, to uh, this viewer at least, uh, sounded uh, spectacularly counterproductive. But the warning, I guess, is, is, the, is the key thing that he wants to convey and that, that I'll relay. The point being, as he put it, that Israel does not have three branches of government in its uh, um, democratic hierarchy. It has two. There's an executive and there's a judiciary. There's no legislature because the executive, the government, when it has a like-minded majority as the new government has, can do what it wants in the Knesset. It can get, can get every law through. Uh, and he made it even more sharp. He basically said there's the prime minister. Uh, and the courts, because the prime minister runs the coalition, and uh, he was thinking very much of Netanyahu, a very dominant prime minister. Basically, the only defense against abuses by the current coalition or any majority coalition, and specifically uh, the Netanyahu-led coalition, he said, is the high court and the quote-unquote reforms remove from the court the capacity to put the brakes on any abuse of any rights of any and all Israelis. That's what he was saying. And that's, you know, pretty drastic. Each of the three interviews were followed on each of the three TV stations on Saturday night by interviews with the justice minister, who was semi-politely, utterly dismissive. Barak had suggested that they get together and talk. He offered to speak to Netanyahu. Uh, basically, Yeriv Levin said, you know, you didn't consult with anybody when you, uh, when you abrogated all these powers to your court, and we're now going to, you know, change, change the way things work around here. He said there will be discussion in the Knesset committees, uh, but, you know, obviously he said, I hope that what's eventually legislated is close to what I've presented, because I think it's the best uh, solution for Israel. And just one final thing, he said it will be, you know, the legislation will be a patient, in-depth process, but the um, office of the uh, Knesset member who heads the committee where the discussions are supposed to take place told the Times of Israel yesterday that they hope to get these uh, proposals into law uh, in the next two months, by, by March, maybe the end of March, so maybe three months. But this is not a gradual, much debated, consultative process. This is a legislative blitz that radically changes the balance of power, shall we say, between the political echelon and the judicial echelon. So apropos putting the brakes on, three drivers employed by the prime minister's office for about 30 years were fired earlier this week amid reports that Netanyahu has been clearing house of staff who served in previous governments, including his own. However, it turns out that these three drivers are set to serve as prosecution witnesses in the ongoing trial against Netanyahu. What do you make of this? Well, I'm not certain that they've been fired. Uh, they've been told that they're being fired. Uh, these are three 30-year veterans driving in prime ministerial motorcades um, whose main sin appears to be uh, actually that they continue to drive for prime ministers Bennett and Lapid. The lawyer who represents them has not confirmed that they're all testifying against him, uh, but that has been widely reported. There ha has been a suggestion that they will not be fired, but rather will be transferred to the employ of uh, President Herzog. 
But the saga is, uh, I mean, it's, you know, you made a, a, a witty semantic uh, link with the last story, but there's a genuine, you know, practical link. If the worst came to the worst, these drivers would appeal to the high court. If the high court is, you know, radically disempowered, it's the kind of thing where uh, they will look for some kind of assistance and may not be able to find it. Uh, I'm not a jurist. I don't know um, how the proposed reforms would actually specifically affect their case, but you get the idea. And it kind of underlines this, I mean, disquieting is an understatement, uh, sense that you have a new coalition that uh, is doing things that uh, would not have been done in the past. We should stress, you know, 30-year veterans. These are all three of these drivers have driven for Netanyahu, uh, I would imagine, for far longer than any other prime minister, simply because he's been prime minister for far longer than any other prime minister. And uh, if this process is playing out the way the prime minister apparently wants it to play out, uh, they will be maybe out of work, certainly transferred, because they continued to drive in the 18 months when he wasn't the prime minister. Okay, David, very briefly, we have time for a quick segment on an archaeology piece that uh, we published yesterday. Do you want to ask me any questions about that? I'd be delighted to. We published an article that's, that suggests that cut silver pieces dating back 3,600 years are the first evidence of silver being used as a currency in this part of the world. So this is your field, Amanda. Tell us more. So essentially, this is one of many pieces of research that is diving into actually ancient trade routes. Yes, what we have here is stating that we have uh, cut pieces of silver that are used as currency. Basically, the silver pieces would have been weighed against uh, some other major purchase, such as a, I don't know, a piece of land or something of, of that nature. But what the archaeologists here are stating is that it's 500 years prior to previous estimates. So what is interesting here is twofold. One, that these pieces of silver apparently are from Anatolia, which points to a large trade route. How are they finding this? Because of isotopic uh, analysis, which is just an amazing way for researchers to reanalyze finds that were previously excavated even dozens or even a hundred years ago. So that's interesting in itself. Now, we know about these cut silver pieces uh, as currency. And in fact, in one interview I, I did with the former head of coins at the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority, he said, these 400 shekels, the shekel weight, it, the shekel was a weight that Abraham paid for the cave of patriarchs would have been in these weighed pieces of silver. But what this particular research is saying is that this happened not just in the Iron Age, which is where most people put the biblical period, but also in the Middle Bronze period. So these are the two very interesting things coming out of this particular piece of research from the University of Haifa and Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Can I ask you two things briefly about that summation you just gave us? First of all, uh, these these pieces were found in Israel, in, in southern Israel, around Gaza, is that correct? Or, or, or elsewhere? So it's reanalysis of things that were found in Megiddo, in Shiloh, in, uh, yes, one of the cases is in a, a mound in Gaza, in many other places throughout Israel. So all, all over Israel and, and in Gaza. And the second thing is your, your mention of Abraham, the cave of the patriarchs is incredibly fascinating. Does this shed any light on that? Does it, uh, did we know that such uh, currency was used at that time already? Or this suggests that it's uh, more, uh, um, reliably uh, established than in the past. 
No, we knew that this uh, shekel weight of silver was in these little pieces of cut up silver jewelry or silver statues. We knew that was happening already when Abraham purportedly purchased the cave of the patriarchs. So this predates it. Exactly. Gotcha. Wow. Fascinating. Yes. We'll go to a short break now. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Ina, you worked on an in-depth investigation into, frankly, horrors that are facing many Ukrainian women who fled their homes for Israel. Your piece broke down the abuses into several different categories. But before we get into that, what spurred you to take on this subject? What spurred me to take on this subject is um, it's un- unavoidable, the, the ongoing war in Ukraine and that uh, the fact that um, so many people are coming over, uh, are fleeing Ukraine from different countries, one of which is Israel. And uh, here on the streets of Israel, you you see Ukrainian refugees, you you hear them talking. And uh, I wanted to find out more about the stories and what's really going on deep in their communities. So we should note that your secret weapon is that you actually speak Russian. And so you could communicate with these women directly. What were some of the stories that you heard from them? Yes, unfortunately, I don't speak uh, Ukrainian, but a Russian certainly helped. Uh, in fact, it was a long process. The investigation took me almost two months to do. And this was because it was incredibly difficult to really get people to open up. They've been through so much back home uh, with the war, uh, with fleeing the war, with, with coming into Israel, only to face very difficult situations here. And many of them at first were just not willing to speak about but once um, once people got to know me within the community, they started opening up, introducing me to their friends and family and relatives. And I found cases um, of violence, of sexual sexual exploitation, abuse, uh, even some cases of rape. Uh, in one case, um, one person died by suicide. Um, and this was due to many factors, uh, one of which was uh, the sheer difficulty of life in Israel that they're facing. And in the course of my investigation, um, one thing that kept coming up over and over again is the fact that Israeli government's policy is deeply, deeply flawed on this issue, uh, ranging from uh, access to support, access to lawyers, to uh, basic things like what what exactly are the rights of uh, Ukrainians to work here? This keeps changing almost on a monthly basis. It's uh, it's mind boggling. It's it's complete maze, and many people are simply unaware of their rights. As a result, they're pushed 
into illegal work with no contracts, no assurances of any kinds, and end up being exploited by their employers and feeling completely helpless and, and lost, frankly. Let's talk about one case in which the Israeli government, or at least the subsidiaries who are taking care of this particular matter, really, really messed up. They sent some of these refugees into what later became known as a brothel. Tell us about this particular case. Yes, this case uh, happened uh, this summer, and um, many people told me about this. This was uh, reported in Israeli media initially, and uh, one of the piece, uh, people I ended up speaking to had actually gone back to Ukraine. Um, she came to Israel to uh, heal her leg through uh, through explosion. She managed to do that, and she was recovering um, in this hostel that the Israeli government placed her into, and yet she could not get any rest because all the time there was either loud music or, frankly, loud sex happening uh, in rooms all around her. And uh, one of the most frightening moments was uh, when in the middle of the night, someone clearly drunken was trying to break into her room and she was unable to move. She was uh, bound in a wheelchair and she said, I, I didn't know who to call for help. There was no one in the reception. All the other Ukrainians were based on a different floor to me. I didn't know what to do. Um, but this was not the only problem with this with this place. Uh, the other the other issues were that um, uh, people, other Ukrainians staying there started being offered work. Some of them as cleaners, uh, one person at least as a masseuse. And it took two months for the authorities to react and to move everyone from this hotel. When I talked to the Ministry of Welfare, they said, of course, we didn't know this was this kind of a hotel. Everything was done very, very quickly. We had to act. However, what happened happened. And uh, many people are still still reeling from the effects of this. Let's talk about the case of a woman whom you called Marina. She was exploited by her employer, but it's such exploitation that it's servitude. Tell us about her. Mar uh, Marina, to me, is a prime example of um, someone who who got lost in this whole in inextricable maze of Israeli government policies regarding work. Marina uh, fled to Israel, uh, fled the war and, and wanted to come here, yet uh, she understood that she was not able to work, which was certainly the case at the beginning of the war. So she sought the help of a friend of a friend of a friend who said, don't worry, come over, everything will be fine. So she shows up and instead she gets put up in a shared room with, with another woman in a flat that is covered in in mold. And uh, she's told you will work two five-hour cleaning shifts every day. Uh, you will give all your money uh, to your employer. Um, the employer will confiscate uh, almost half of this. We'll give her the rest at the end of the month or whenever it suits him. And, um, and this kind of situation became very, very difficult for her. She started suffering suffering physically. She was uh, physically ill. Um, mentally, she was in a very bad place. She was worrying about her children um, who were still in Ukraine, her family there. And she felt she had, she was being completely exhausted by, by this kind of work and saw no way out. Um, luckily for her, she managed to uh, get in touch with a volunteer center in Haifa who began trying to advise her about uh, her options. Until, until she did that, uh, she thought that if she spoke out to anyone about this, she would be automatically deported back to Ukraine. So she was living in fear. Ina, what is your biggest takeaway after having completed this two-month investigation into these abuses? I'm not sure I could sum it up in one, but uh, there's one thing that sticks in my mind, um, which is one Israeli official telling me, but look, uh, this is, you know, this is perhaps one of the first times that Israel is accepting non-Jewish people fleeing war, even if they're not official refugees. 
And uh, when I heard that, it, it just uh, it shocked me because uh, ultimately Israel is a country founded by refugees, for refugees who fled the most terrific, uh, terrible atrocities in the world. And uh, and yet for people fleeing war in Ukraine right now, the policies are at best negligent, at worst willfully ignorant of what these people are facing. Ina, thank you so much for sharing that. David, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.